Technicolor Jesus is brought to you in partnership with the Christian Century, a magazine for progressive church leaders. Hey everyone, this is Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, we are inviting back some of our good friends to talk about their favorite Christmas movie scenes. It is our annual Christmas movie extravaganza. My name is Adam, and I am a scholar, minister, and teacher in Pennsylvania. And I'm Matt, and I'm the pastor at University Presbyterian Church in Austin, Texas. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invited some former guests to come back on the show to talk about one of their favorite scenes from Christmas pop culture. But before we do that, Matt, what Christmas scene stands out to you as relevant for our work and ministry in theology and life? So I'm going to talk about a TV show. There's actually there's like a series of Christmas episodes that is part of my kind of like Christmas prep ritual couple from the West Wing, a couple of Aaron Sorkin pieces, but like one of them that I come back to year after year is uh is Regional Holiday Music, which is a uh, Community season 3 episode 10 airs December 2011. Uh Community if you were not in with me at the time is a is an NBC sitcom that ran for a few years about a bunch of super jaded sarcastic folks who go to a community college and hang out in this one study group together. The show is always layered with a lot of references, a lot of pop culture awareness, a lot of zeitgeist awareness, and this episode is no different. Our regional holiday music is a is a ripoff of Glee. It, it is a takedown of Glee. This is December 2011, so, so the show Glee is at the height of its powers. And the conceit in this episode is that the local Greendale Community College Glee Club has all gone into inpatient psychiatric care. <laughs> and so the study group is asked to fill in for the upcoming holiday extravaganza. Now, none of the people in the study group have any interest in this whatsoever. I mean, Glee, the kind of disposition of Glee is the exact opposite of the disposition of anybody in the Greendale study group which by this point has become a kind of a hive of bitter, sarcastic, jaded folks who would have no interest in either a glee club or like cheer of any kind. But as the episode goes on, th the show suggests that some of this glee is kind of contagious. The glee club director, which is a guest appearance by then SNL star Taryn Killen, has a, the glee club has a way of infecting folks. They, they turn into zombie versions of themselves except that the zombies are the ones with energy and pep and without all of the usual disaffection that our protagonists constantly exhibit and this happens with musical numbers they have this the show is based on this series of one-on-one -on -one musical numbers in which one character sings something that compels the other character to then join into the glee club and join into the the kind of spirit of the season the best one of these in the scene that I will go back to um, is is the Troy and Abed rap Christmas Infiltration. When Danny, Danny Pudi's Abed suggests to Donald Glover's Troy, who is a Jehovah's Witness on the show, 
that he can still celebrate Christmas if he goes undercover to infiltrate all the Christians who were celebrating it and learn about their customs and take them down from the inside. So that he has permission to therefore be gleeful. Let's hear a few seconds of that. What if you were a Jehovah's Witness that was merely pretending to be into Christmas, gathering clues and blending in to take down the holidays from within? You mean like a spy investigating? Making it seem like I'm celebrating when actually I'm infiltrating Santa's operation? Yoip! Going deep, cover past enemy lines, making everybody think I'm on the Christmas side. Rocking warm sweaters, hanging big-ass lights. If the fat man can see me, yo, it's gotta look right. I watch all the TV specials that I never could. I'll even cry during the sad ones like James Bond would and when the big night. So what I love about this episode is the way in which it plays with the kind of complicated emotional resonance of the season. Like, not everybody wants to feel gleeful at Christmas. and But there is something kind of weirdly contagious and kind of terrifying about it at times. Like, what if I don't feel the same pep that everybody else in the room feels? And what the episode so perfectly undercuts is the idea that Christmas is some kind of required emotional state which is why I come back to it over and over. What about you, Adam? What what scene jumps out for you? What's part of your ritual? So we're thinking on the same wavelength because the the scene that I love, that I, if I know it's coming up because it's always on TV, uh, I will stick around for, is in the Christmas story where the protagonist, Ralphie, beats the hell out of the bully. And I watch it, myself with a certain amount of glee in part because it's so rare within the season that you get an opportunity for like rage and this shows up in a couple of other places and so anytime someone is raging during christmas i find some like a deep connection with them also in the national lampoon's christmas vacation where chevy chase sort of goes off the deep end because he doesn't get uh the the christmas bonus right and um and the Christmas story is actually a really good example of all of the ways in which these emotions that we don't associate with Christmas are constantly leaking out. Yeah. And whether it's whether it's Ralphie sort of beating the hell out of the uh the bully, whether it's the the dad and his like both his excitement for for certain things but also like righteous indignation that he has around about the world around him. So when you do get that moment of like true, honest emotion, I feel like it's so thrilling. So I'm sitting here thinking about we last year on our extravagance episode, I talked about Home Alone for a little bit. And like the moment, the scene in Home Alone that kind of that that tugs at me sentimentally when he's sitting in the church and the choir is singing and he has this kind of moment of reconciliation with the scary old man next door. uh, And and maybe what you're suggesting is that actually that's not the most important Christmas scene of the movie. Maybe the most important Christmas scene is when the guy gets hit in the head with a pail and falls down the stairs and nearly dies. I think that there's something to be said about this. <laughs> no, I really do. I think I think that there, um, I think that there's something to be said about making room for yourself to yeah. rage against some of this stuff. Yeah, because there is so much that's bound to go wrong. I mean, I was telling you earlier not to get too graphic, but norovirus just ripped through our house where we were. My whole family was all sick at the same time. And it was about the least Christmassy scene you've ever seen. I mean, it was like apocalyptic in here. 
And yet there was something about this where my wife and I and our kids are feeling absolutely miserable and we're all doing it together. <laughs> and like it struck me at the same time as being sort of deeply Christmas. <laughs> I think this is a good transition to our guests. We have invited back Eric Barreto from Princeton Theological Seminary. Jessica Messman Griffith from Sick Pilgrim and Laurel Cope Taylor from Eden Theological Seminary to uh, talk with us about some of their favorite scenes. And I think that the running theme through these conversations, Matt, is just the need for a wide range of emotions available to us in the Christmas season. So we are grateful to have them back and we've pre-recorded these conversations. And so here they are. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Eric Barreto, who is the Weyerhaeuser Chair, uh, Associate Chair of New Testament. Did I get this right? Those are all in the wrong order. <laughs> or the Weyerhaeuser Associate Professor of New Testament. It's, it makes for a great uh, business card. <laughs> right. Okay. So Eric is here, uh, and he is going to tell us about one of his favorite Christmas scenes. So for some reason, the first movie that came to mind was Trading Spaces, uh, Trading Places, not Trading Spaces, Trading Places, a uh, movie that came out in the 80s, and Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, 1983, John Landis. 83. Man. See, and it feels like such an 80s movie, including all the scenes that make you cringe because, you know, we've changed in good ways since then. Right. But the basic idea is, you know, Eddie Murphy is a homeless guy and these two rich guys decide to ruin their partner's um, or their business partner's life in this sociological experiment to lift up this homeless guy and they do and they do it all for a dollar but my favorite scene is at the end when um you know dan Aykroyd, eddie murphy together conspire against these uh these two rich guys and they have this scene at the at the floor of the stock market and they're trading orange uh orange futures or something like that right it's one of the most like confusing <laughs> yes. like economic questions in movies of the last 25 30 years but I was Googling it and apparently like Bloomberg thinks like it actually educated a whole generation of people about markets. So, like it was like the clearest, like it doesn't make any sense, right? But it's the clearest explanation of future markets. But in the scene, it's kind of this triumphal moment. Uh, they they also bet a dollar over the, the fate of these two, two old guys, old rich guys. The Dukes, and, yes. The Dukes, that's right. And they end up at the end of the movie happy their feet up on some beach with cocktails in their hands, living life happily. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very uh, it's a funny culminating scene. So tell me what, like, it. the movie takes place at Christmas. It is ostensibly a Christmas movie in the sense that um, it, everything sort of happens around the holidays. Right. Why this movie with regard to Christmas? Well, I think part of it was, I, I've been thinking a lot about this in my own work. I, so you have these, it's a David and Goliath story, except with a little twist, right? Because a Goliath becomes a David, and then eventually the David pairs up with another David, and they take down other Goliaths. So it's this very kind of stereotypical story about the little guys beating the powerful. So and that might be something that resonates with us in Christmas. But I've also been wondering if, I, I, I started to wonder, how is it that they actually do this? They use the tools of the powerful. Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd use the tools that are powerful. They use deception. They use greed. They use the irrationality of markets. And I have to wonder, even in the end, even though they end up on a beach happy, are they heroes in this story? And it makes me wonder about the kind of language and the kind of the ways, the kind of language that we use and that scripture uses 
to clothe Jesus' victory. And so how do we describe Jesus' victory? Do we use the language of empire and the powerful to describe, say, what the incarnation is or what the parousia is? And in using that language, do we lose something in, in, in the midst of that? Do we, um, do we uh, strip Jesus of his, of, of his ability to be a hero in the story by tying him too close to imperial language or imperial ideology? Um, and I don't know how to answer that, but I think that's one reason the, the story has been coming to me. How do we, how do we talk about the nativity in a way that's true to its radical nature, but also doesn't kind of sell out to, to empire's ideas? Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, if you think about the nativity, it, it's an arrival. It's an entry in its own yeah. way. And, um, and in a context where triumphal entry is an important part of the political theater, like how in, in the nativity is Jesus entry into this very fraught political landscape different than anything you would expect from someone who's supposed to be a king or powerful. Right. And can we in any way avoid using the language of the powerful, of the king, of the empire? Because that's that's the biggest language that we seem to have. So even it, it eventually becomes gospel in English, but in Greek, it's euangelion. It literally means good announcement. Yeah. But that same word is used to announce the, the birth of, of new emperors, right? Like that's how you talk about this kind of arrival, this kind of uh, moment where the world is turning. Um, yeah, and how much do you have to buy into that ideology, even in the, the basic use of that language? But So let me push back for just a second, though. Yeah, um, please do. Because so they have, you have these symbols, and I think one of the disconcerting parts of being in a subordinate position with relation to power is that you really can't opt out of the social symbolic equilibrium of the yeah. of the context right you you you're caught in it yes. as much as you'd like to not use it the world won't let you right. um yeah. and so to the extent that you can't opt out what mm -hmm. other strategies to try and disrupt the powerful are left to you except to take this language and to try and mess with it right okay. to try and like subvert it use it in new directions try and find yeah. some sort of like new semiotic way to like press it um, yeah. I, I think about the work there's a Michel de Soto talks about you know capturing language he was he was in Paris in the 67 student riots um, and he's seeing them take the language of the academy and reroute it in new different ways yeah. in order to sort of subvert the academy and and I'm wondering to what extent is it also necessary to take something like Evangelion or even like the cross uh, you know a, a symbol of imperial execution and reroute it because that's really the only option left no i think that's right i think um and i think so here post-colonial stuff really helps us right so when we think about things like hybridity and other concepts it it, it kind of creates a space between just accommodation and just resistance like it's always a mixture of accommodation and resistance that we're a part of um and we can escape it you're right and i think in some ways we don't maybe we shouldn't want to escape it like it's incarnational it's it's that that cultural space into which we're called. But I wonder if what's necessary is for us to count the costs of buying into sure. that language, of using those images, um, that it's not free. It comes at a cost to our souls. And maybe it's, uh, it's a cost worth paying, but it's a cost nonetheless that I think we need to, to really be aware of. Well, and it's a cost that 
not just the people who are forced to use it have to mm-hmm. pay. It's it's a tax levied by the powerful on them yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, and it is and that, and that some people pay a higher rate than others. It's yeah, cost of course, more right? Use, I so. mean, and and that there's real there's real consequence to this. I I think yeah. about Luke's gospel and you know. Quirinius's census has some sort of yep. cost, right? Like the the idea that you're going to try and order the net, the world, which is a strange yep. thing to begin with, right? Like that you That's would count right. a census in yep. order to group everyone together so that you know how to better manage extract. how to extract the most out of them. Yes, right? Like yep. and so in order to do that, you lay an incredible imposition upon the lives of someone like Mary and Joseph who don't move easily. Um, especially yeah. as a, as a pregnant woman, <laughs> you yeah. know, I think the census is, is a great example of this because I think we miss it because we think of the census as this form we fill out every 10 years, but I think in antiquity, it actually carried the, the weight of empire with it. The, the empire could, at least in the imagination of Luke, could force people to move from here to there so that they could be counted, so that the the resources that they had could be extracted the most efficiently, the most efficiently as possible. So that that the, the mention of a census carries with it the shadow of, of the empire's might. And I wonder, in some ways, if that's not also still true for us. It looks like it's just demographic curiosity, but it really is about a certain exercise of power, a certain exercise of where uh where the boundaries of a political district are going to be drawn where resources are going to go there's yeah. a lot more at stake in this stuff than a, maybe at first glimpse well and it's certainly born from the imagination of powerful people right because mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. is the assumption that i can order the the world in front of me that i have the means yeah. both to measure and order yeah. um and so something like the chaotic um is so frightening. And this is why yeah. I think, you know, Herod is also sort of frightened in the, in the nativity Indeed. story, because there, there are these things that are, that are disrupting the natural order. Yeah. You know, the star really struck- that shows up, these, these yeah. strange foreigners that show up at his core. And now yeah. like it's put something onto his radar that is beyond his control. And I'm really struck in Matthew how um, it says, and all the people of Jerusalem with them are as anxious as Herod is. And it's not because they're on Herod's side and they're really like, why is Herod upset? They're worried about when Herod is upset, bad things happen. Right. So I think there's something about the powerful there. And it actually, I think, brings us really nicely back to the movie, too, the, the way you're appointing us, Adam, is that, um, you know, these two dukes think they control the world and they think they can throw these two people into this sociological experiment just to see what happens. And the movie kind of has this comeuppance at the end where it turns out they don't actually have the kind of power that they thought they did. And again, going back to nativity scenes, there might be something about that, too, that you have Jesus being born in this kind of unremarkable place and this unremarkable moment, this unremarkable city. But it's um, but it's the kind of message that should be resonating in Caesar's halls, even though he has no idea this little baby has been born. I think that's kind of part of Luke's. Um, literary project is that he keeps punctuating those first two chapters with bigger historical moments. So when, when the census happens, when this guy is Caesar, when this guy is King locally, that that's audacious to say this little story about this little baby in the middle of nowhere needs to be recorded alongside these, these massive historical moments. That's um, there's an audacity to that, that I think reflects the fragility of the powerful um, or at least Luke's vision of fragility of the powerful in his own time. 
Well, Eric, thanks so much for jumping on and having a conversation with us this Christmas. And uh, hopefully sometime soon we'll, we'll have another conversation. I would love to. Thanks, Adam. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I am chatting with Jessica Messman Griffith, who brought us the Babadook way back a couple of years ago on our show, and we are excited to talk about Christmas scenes. Jessica is uh, the author of Love and Salt, A Spiritual Friendship in Letters, and uh, one of the co-founders over at Sick Pilgrim. Jessica, it's good to hear your voice again. Tell me what's going on. Tell me about a Christmas scene that means something to you. Thanks for having me back. Um, I love Christmas movies. And I know I have, um, in my professional life, I often write about horror and, um, and the darker things, but I have a really sentimental sappy side and it's an intense nostalgia for childhood that goes along with my melancholy. And, um, so that means I also really love going to Disney world and, um, watching Christmas movies. So I, I have, you know, my usual film festival slate, but there is one movie that my children will no longer watch with me because it makes me too emotional. And that's the one I want to talk to you about today. And that is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Like you told me we were going to talk about this and I have to freely admit I had never heard of it before. And I'm a little ashamed. So what is this movie? Well, I consider myself an evangelist for this film. So I, when people haven't heard of it, I often want to make them sit down and watch it. It's a Jim Henson um you know, puppetry feature from the late seventies. It came out in 1977, which was the year after I was born. And it was the sort of thing that would just like come on HBO during the Christmas season. And my family had HBO when I was little and didn't monitor my, um, watching of it very well, which is also how I saw poltergeist by the time I was six or seven years old. So, um, not a great idea in terms of formative experiences, but I also stumbled across beautiful things like Fraggle Rock and this movie, um, which has been hugely influential to me. It's a, it's a beautiful movie. It's also really melancholy and that, um, nobody really gets what they want in the end of this film. (laughs) And it's very much a film about, um, being poor and being in deep grief. There's, um, Emmett Otter, who is the main character lives with his mother, who is a poor wash woman. And, um, his father has recently died and they're both grieving his death. Um, again, these are all like serious seventies things that would happen in children's movies that I feel like we got away from later. We, We wouldn't go there now. Um, but there's like a real, um, deep melancholy in this film that I think spoke to me even as a child and especially now. So Emmett and his mother are both musicians and they sing all of these lovely songs throughout. It's a musical like most Jim Henson, but the songs are really great. They're this sort of like bluegrass jug band thing. And then there is a villainous set of, um, of bullies who are in a heavy metal band, um, the river bottom nightmare gang. And so these, it's kind of sets up this tension between the two groups, the, the poor outsiders who, um, have to make music on Emmett's mother's washboard. Um, and then the rich city kids who, um, can play heavy metal and have electric guitars. (laughs) Um, I know. And like, I take it really seriously, but (laughs) that's sort of, there's a battle of the bands and Emmett really wants to win so he can buy his mother what she wants for Christmas. It's all his, the intentions are good. The motivation is there, but 
the poor jug band just can't compete with this amazing heavy metal outfit. Um, and so in the end, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but what happens is, um, you know, though people don't necessarily get what they think they want, there's a beautiful message about coming together as a family and, and, um, and making that music within your community. So there's this lovely, like, we're all going to rally around each other. And then in the end, things work out in a different way that is even more beautiful than they could have imagined. So they don't get the material things they wanted, but they get something much better. It's a beautiful message, but it's also, um, extremely, all of these like lovely songs that just make you want to weep and therefore your kids don't want to watch it with you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So is there, so, so is there a moment, is there a scene in here that when you think about this movie, you think like, that's the, that's the kind of touchstone moment for me that sums it up or that, that, that speaks to me. Oh yeah. Well, there's this beautiful recurring song that, um, Emmett's practicing his song with his jug band. And at the same time, he doesn't realize his mother has entered the same battle of the bands to sing, to try to win him what he wants for Christmas. And so you get to see each of them rehearsing throughout. And Emmett's mother's song is this beautiful old spiritual. Um, and, and then, in the end, the two songs come together. Hmm. And when the two songs come together, they just, they realize that what was missing was the other song and the other person. So it's that moment in the end when they're all walking home, dispirited from having lost the battle of the bands and everything is awful and no one has Christmas presents, but they all start singing their songs independently. And then they come together in this beautiful way. And, and of course that, you know, turns on all the waterworks for me. And I'm just like looking at YouTube clips of this thing and it just, it has that like late seventies handmade kind of Muppet show feel to it. I mean, you know, clearly, and it just, it, it, so as a child of the Muppet show, it's super evocative for me and I can't wait to go and watch this thing all the way through. Yeah. It's so great. And it's really funny and witty in the way that the Muppet show was too. Like there's real emotion in it. And I I mean, what I get a little bit over wrought by it because it reminds me of my own childhood so much, but there it's, it's got all of that wit and humor of the Muppet show. And the first song in it is this great, um, this just like an old bluegrass tune about grandma's bathing suit and how uh, this extremely, extremely corpulent grandmother who had a bathing suit that hung on the wash line and all the wonderful uses for it. And it's just one of the wittiest, most hilarious songs in a children's film ever. So I, I just highly recommend it. To anyone who hasn't seen it, you've got to put it on your list for your family watching. There you have it, folks. <laughs> Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. That is a Technicolor Jesus recommendation to you. A Jessica Messman Griffith recommendation to you. Jessica, thanks so much for joining up with us. Good to hear your voice. Oh, yours too. Thank you. All right, I'm here with Laurel Cope Taylor, who is the assistant professor of Old Testament at Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis. And Laurel is here to tell us about one of her favorite Christmas scenes. It's one that you might not expect or probably haven't seen. So, Laurel, give us a rundown of the scene and why you think it's important for us as ministers, as theologians, as people who care about movies and ministry. Yeah, so my favorite scene from a Christmas movie is one of the deleted scenes from Love Actually. And I know that the movie itself, a lot of people love it, but it's also really problematic. And right now when 
We're a bunch more aware of sexual harassment in the workplace. There's problems there, but that's that's not in this particular scene that got deleted. This is a scene. Um, so Emma Emma Thompson's character has this kind of obnoxious son, and there used to be a scene where her love for her obnoxious son comes through because he gets in trouble at school for writing an essay that his Christmas wish is to be able to see people's farts. As and you do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like there's this stern head mistress, right? And she's, she's called both the boy and his mother into her office uh, to give them a talking to about his essay about wanting to see people's farts. And instead of being mad at her son, she just loves him so much for wanting to see people's farts. And that scene got deleted. And because that scene got deleted, uh, you never meet the headmistress. And so the headmistress has her own scene. And the, the scene about the headmistress and, and the love in her life is the one that's my favorite scene. And I think like in the, under the deleted scenes, it's called How Was Today?, and she goes home and uh, her partner is terminally ill and she comes home to her terminally ill partner and the two of them uh, talk about how their day was and uh, her partner teases her about being pompous, about this boy who wanted to see people's farts and about buying sausages that have asparagus and apple in them instead of just regular sausages. And, and that's love that, that relationship that love for somebody who you're able to be completely annoyed by and, and love the same things that you're completely annoyed by. And it's also, it's also grief. Right. It's also like what makes it grief is that that love is so intense uh, because uh, the scene sort of concludes by saying that, you know, by the time you get to the nativity play at the end of the movie, uh, the headmistress's partner has died. And and so what's interesting to me about this scene, in addition to just loving that, you know, it's funny and it's well acted and it's tragic and it's it's grief that got cut out of the movie in a way that's kind of similar to the way that grief gets cut out of Christmas. Sometimes yeah. grief is often one of the deleted scenes of Christmas. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you, you put it that way in part because I think that movie really needs some doses of grief there. Yeah. There is the little boy whose mom has, has, has died. Um, but you get to sense mm -hmm. that, um, but that's still sort of in the background, especially as the father himself is sort of by the end of the movie, I think courting Claudia Schiffer or something like that. I mean, right. it's, yeah, um, do. and the little boy, he's yeah, he's mourning his mom, but he's his plot isn't about like he misses his mom. His plot is about he has a crush on a girl in his class. Right. And and it is tragic to think about this. This season itself doesn't do grief well it doesn't make room for people's grief well and and yet it is so integral to so many people's experience of christmas what do you think about like the the blue christmas or the longest night services that happen in uh in a lot of churches that you and i are part of 
I think I think it's an important thing to have that to make that space for folks. But I also think that it would be good to mainstream it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That having a blue Christmas for the select population of blue people right. is different from recognizing the blueness of us all to having having Advent be blue, which it is. Right. Uh, yeah. When we think about it, you know, the, you know, whether you use purple candles or blue candles, but Advent is really supposed to be blue it's supposed to be it's supposed to be a penitential season and not like quite as penitential as lent uh, and that's part of what was represented in, in going from purple to blue it's penitential but it's not super penitential and as an academic i always joke that advent is always penitential for me because it's my grading season and so i spend all of advent repenting having assigned so much um but there's really there's really an extent to which advent gets lost and and so i have I, two of my closest friends recently lost close family members like in the last month mm. um to brief but acute illness and and it has me thinking more about grief and it also has me wondering if if the people who are grieving aren't the people who are doing Advent right, right? Maybe even, you know, the people who are preparing for Christmas right by grieving. Because penitential, that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Yes. But, but grief, I mean, if you think about like these different, you know, our different Advent candles, right? We've got hope and we've got peace and we've got joy and we've got love and then there's a Christ candle. And in the midst of like intense celebration, None that none of that has much of an impact. I'm intrigued by this idea that maybe we need to help people grieve more, uh, yeah. or 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 not just make places for people to grieve so that they don't intrude on our Christmas celebrations, but to right. help people recognize the ways in which Advent is an opportunity for the church to grieve and celebrate simultaneously, which is what right. what a what you want a church service to be able to accommodate at the same time. Right. Yeah. To have, to have hope in the midst of grief makes that hope matter in a different way, right? To have joy in the midst of grief, to have love in the midst of grief, to find peace in the midst of grief, right? All of those things are, I think what makes it possible to find Christ in the midst of grief. And it's not just, it's not just folks who are currently experiencing uh, grief because of particular life in, uh, circumstances. It's not just that grief is for a particular group of people, but at least in the circles that I run in, there is we're in a period of ongoing grief for the state of humanity. Mm -hmm. And there's something to be said for recognizing that and for Advent being a, se a season of recognizing that and yet having a hope in the midst of it and finding peace in the midst of it. Laurel, you do a lot of work with childhood studies, and I yeah. wonder how does this how does this connect how does this idea connect with hmm. that a little bit? Like, are we in some ways um, hindering our kids in teaching them not only what Advent is but what grieving might look like if we continue to 
to just see this as a celebratory season rather than a penitential one? I think I think there's there's always there's always teaching going on, right? There, you know, there's the explicit curriculum of what we tell kids about Christmas and what we tell kids about Advent and whether we tell kids about Advent. But, you know, there's always the implicit curriculum of, of how we're telling it. And there's always the null curriculum of what we're leaving out. Mm -hmm. And, and we don't have a lot of explicit curriculum of grief for kids of, of how to grieve and how, how to accept feelings that aren't comfortable and live in them and not just jump to stop crying and cheer up already because your crying is constant and loud. Um, I have a two and a half year old. Right. And, and so when we think about, about children and grief, we often try to keep those subjects so far apart. When we think about Christmas joy, we think of it as, as something that belongs to children and that adults try to, to borrow from children to some extent. And so I think we, our celebration is dependent on children to be joyful mm -hmm. when there are certainly things about Christmas that make children joyful, but the overstimulation of it isn't easy on kids. And, and yet we require them to be perpetually joyful. We require them to not have trouble with, uh, with the the constant overstimulation of it uh, because we're dependent on them to be the embodiment of, of the joy that um, if you listen to a lot of Christmas music is really just trying so hard for nostalgia is striving so hard for what Christmas was when you were a kid. And maybe it wasn't, maybe it actually wasn't that great when you were a kid either. So finally, like what, what other Christmas movie would you uh, advocate for? Maybe not because of this same theme, but just because you think it's a it's an appropriate uh, addition to Christmas canon. I am a big fan on the sentimental end of things of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The Rankin-Bass uh, one? Yes, the Rankin-Bass one. Um, not the creepy sequel. Uh, <laughs> Because it's really creepy. I don't know how they managed to make reindeer that creepy. But yeah, the Rankin-Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I I love it. And I love it nostalgically. And I love it with a good bit of, uh, of irony when they get to the part where they say, well, they're all very sad for the death of their friend. But they know that the most important thing is to get the women home. Um, which lets us know how the word they must be gendered in that sentence. Right. But I, I also love it as a very thinly veiled coming out story. Okay. Um, that, that there is, there is more, uh, gay coding in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer than you see in, in a lot of Christmas movies. And I really appreciate that. Rudolph has this dad who was trying to get him to hide. And he's like, no, you're going to be like everyone else. And there are more important things than comfort, like self-respect. That's um, <laughs> what his dad tells him when he puts that thing on his nose, right? Laurel, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for talking. I appreciate it. Um, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yes, I hope so. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. Merry Christmas.
Merry Christmas. Thanks again to our friends, Eric Barreto, Jessica Messman Griffith, and Laurel Cope-Failer for jumping on the show with us. We really appreciate it. And Matt, that gets us to the end. Special thanks again to our friends at the Christian Century who have been so great to us this year. We're so thankful for our partnership with them. Uh, If you're listening and you don't yet subscribe to the Century, Technicolor Jesus listeners can get a free trial magazine subscription. For more information, visit christiancentury.org slash podcast offer. Special thanks also to Garrett Moskowski, who's helping us out. And special thanks to you, Matt. Matt, it's the end of the year, and I'm grateful for you as a friend and as someone who uh, continues to journey on with me on this strange show of ours. Adam, I feel like you're forcing a holiday emotion on me, and I don't (laughs) fully appreciate it. Come on, give me one. one Can we do it? Can we have? Let's have a podcast hug. Podcast hug. (laughs) Merry Christmas to you, Adam. Merry Christmas.